Welcome to another episode of the Empathy Series. And today, special guest all the way from the UK is Dr. Neil McRae. He is a senior lecturer at King's College in London and uh, is special is a researcher. He's put out quite a lot of research, actually, and specializes in things like mental health. One of the cool things that he did with the Bruges Group, we've had Robert Alds on before from the Bruges, Bruges Group. Uh, they wrote a book together called Moralitis, uh, a, a very interesting, I guess... I want to say personification of the woke culture we see around the West today and how that represents, I guess, a virus they call moralitis. And today we're going to discuss a few things about what's going on in the world today. But primarily, I want to talk to Neil about why. I think that's a more interesting question. Why do people uh, embrace moralitis? Why do people uh, love lockdowns and and all this kind of thing. So, uh, Neil, thank you for joining me to talk about, of all things, empathy. Well, uh, yes, he hello. And the answer to your question is is uh, obviously quite a, a complex one, but I'll, I'll try and be very uh, uh, brief um, and just sort of summarize what I think is going on. So Robert and I wrote this book, Moralitis, A Cultural Virus, before the COVID outbreak. In fact, we even slightly delayed the publication of it because we, we thought that as the outbreak was um, hitting around the world, that it might be seems insensitive in some way to put out a book anal anal analogizing about a, a virus. But actually, I think the COVID uh, reaction and the COVID regime is a... It is a classic demonstration of moralitis. I mean, I'm sure you see in Australia as well as we see in UK how the COVID measures have got a very strong moral tone to them, you know, around mask wearing. Uh, and there's a lot of virtue signaling going on. And any skeptics are demonized. Um, so all of the things that we wrote about in Moralitis, A Cultural Virus, are being practiced um, w w with vehemence, I think, in the COVID um, situation that we're in at the moment. Why, you asked, why do people embrace wokeness and why do people embrace lockdown controls? Um, I think what we've got to do here to answer that question is to see two levels. So there's the, the majority of people who are going along with this. They're, they're just compliant. You know, we, we call them carriers of the virus, carriers of moralitis. Um, scratch the surface and they don't necessarily really believe that there's a hundred genders or, you know, some of the other woke nonsense. Um, but they, they, they know that to get on in life, they have to embrace these ideas and they have to um, signal that they agree with them because that's signaling that they're a good person, a moral person, and someone who conforms. Now, that's a, lot, that's a large number of people, particularly younger uh, people. But above that you, you, is where you need to go to find out why. And, and I think there's been a long-term strategy, uh, and you can go back to the 1920s with critical theory, um, cultural Marxism, but also go back to movements such as technocracy 
in the USA in the 1930s, which uh, eventually be, uh, morphed into what was a new organization called the Trilateral Commission and uh, the, the Globalist Movement, which wraps itself in progressive values and in slogans that no one can disagree with. Who's going to say they don't care about the environment? Who's going to say they don't care about social justice? But you see, all these slogans are just a facade for the progressive um, globalist movement, which is self-serving, uh, which wants an elite to be in total control of the world's population and resources. So the, the, the people are going along with woke ideology. They are just suckers. They're suckers for um, sloganeering, um, for this um, diet of virtue signaling, when the real purpose of it is world dominance. Uh, so I, I need to, I need to uh, push back on you, of course, to test your views here because you've, you've just labelled – a lot of my generation, the millennial woke generation, I'm sorry we did this to the world, but a lot of my generation have some really legitimate concerns, whether it be, you know, we you know, don't want to argue too much about climate change or whatever, but my generation is concerned about it and, and want to find the truth. A lot of us don't, a lot of us virtue signal, but what about the rest of us who aren't just virtue signaling, Neil, who really do think we have some problems in the world today. I mean, for example, I'm a big capitalist and yet I can see we have some real problems, especially with the corporate type capitalism we're seeing around the world today. So how, how can you, I don't mean to start the interview um, fighting with you, but how can you just lump us all into one woke group? Um, well, I, I, I'm not um, disagreeing with anything you've just said at all. Uh, look, the world has always had problems and perhaps as the, the population continues to increase, what we're heading towards 9 billion, um, perhaps there are genuine concerns about, uh, the, about overpopulation and about uh, the, the sustainability of the planet and its resources. So I, I, I'm not uh, denying that. And in fact, uh, we have a, a large section of the book, Moralitis, about mass immigration. Now, what you'll see is that the countries of Europe uh, and the West generally would have stable populations by now, right. Right. were it not for mass immigration. We would have much more sustainable resource use, were it not for mass immigration. But the woke ideology forces younger people to show their support right. for immigration because it's all a sloganeering about tolerance and about diversity and about you know, refugee rights and that sort of thing. Now, young people are not helping themselves mm. by supporting mass immigration. It creates more competition for jobs, for housing, for education. And, and what it's done is... By the, by the 1980s, I think the countries of the West had pretty much stabilizing populations. But because of the flood of mass immigration from the 1990s onwards, all these countries, the populations are steadily rising. So that is a problem. I think it is a problem. It's a problem uh, for um, 
resource use, but it's also a problem culturally as well. And I think that th th you've, you've raised a good um, question there, which is, you know, there are certainly problems in the world, but the problems in the world are not being helped by woke ideology. They're being worsened. Okay, so how much of those young'uns who are pushing this kind of stuff, how much of them are the woke idiots, shall we say? And how, many, how, much, <laughs> how much of them are like me? who have a real sense of empathy. So give, let me give you an example. Today is Australia Day here in Australia. And there's this big divide over changing the dates or calling it Invasion Day. And if you look at some of the police responses in the UK are ridiculous. You know, we'll talk about that in a minute. But in Australia, we've had some crazy stuff happen. Are you familiar with people being arrested before crimes have been committed? Are you, this kind of stuff? Um, pregnant Be crying. Sorry? Pre-crime. Pre-crime. We had legislation almost go through here. It was stopped in our upper house as well. That was going to um, allow people to be detained for pre-crime. Uh, we've had police handcuffing pregnant women in their houses for plan putting Facebook posts. Uh, we've had, I've had my own staff being pepper sprayed, a journalist, um, videographers covering uh, protests down at our parliament house. I just want to show you a quick 30 seconds of a video today. There was a invasion day march where thousands upon thousands of people came out breaking the breaking the law. You know we have COVID laws. You're not allowed to gather in certain numbers, and the police were completely yeah. not touch not touching it yet. And then we uh, had BLM protests last year, back in July, I think it was same thing. But in between these two events, we had anti-lockdown, anti-government protests, far far smaller. They were crushed with you know, pepper spray, kettling is a technique they use. So let me show you this, and then we'll have a chat about it. You might not be able to hear the audio, but the audience will. Why aren't you guys enforcing the COVID rules? Sorry? Why aren't you guys enforcing the COVID rules? Where did you keep people safe today, mate? So you're not enforcing any of the rules? Because I've, I've come to some of the other protests mm -hmm. with less people. Yeah. And there was enforcement and kettling. There's, yeah. lots, there's so many breaches happening right now. Yeah, the crowd's pretty well behaved today. So we're just here to make they're sure everyone's so well behaved. Yep. So that's the prerequisite. Is in like adhering COVID to COVID rules. plans? Yeah. Is that? My role here, simply mate, my role here is just to keep people safe and make sure they I was with a group of like 15 people yep. doing media work. Yep. And I got arrested and fined oh, I because I was breaching the COVID out. rules. Yeah. I, there's thousands of people here. Yeah. That's today. And they're not following the COVID rules. Yeah. Is there a double standard? I'm not sure what the stands are, mate. My role here is just to keep people yeah, safe. Yeah, I know. I'm just asking in general yeah, because the police are just watching. That. Yeah. You get the idea, but basically it's complete hypocrisy over here. I assume same thing in the UK. Yeah, it, it, it's very clear. And, and I've been to several anti-lockdown protests in London. In fact, I, I spoke at one at Trafalgar Square in September. And the police have obviously been ordered to make sure these protests don't happen. And they've gone full Melbourne. Uh, Matt, that it is now impossible to have a, a rally in, in in London, and the same tactics have been used um, as were used by um, 
um, your uh, man in um, Victoria. Yeah. And it, what I call new world order arrests have been used to uh, frighten people, to, to deter people. So uh, you'll have seen in, in Australia how a peaceful protester is pulled to the ground by four or five police officers. Yep. Their face scraped on the tarmac and uh, a ring of policemen around to stop anyone who's uh, trying to rescue that person. Uh, so we started to see this in London in from about uh, um, October onwards. Meanwhile, as you say, there are protests going on about other things, typically minority rights. And of course, we had the BLM thing. In, it, it took off all around the world in June. My guess is that Black Lives Matter was the, 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 the marches around the world following the death of George Floyd. Mm. Um, that was contrived by the sort of global establishment. The reason I say that is that George Floyd was a career criminal. And it's fact, actually, it's possible that he didn't die of the um, police officer's um, uh, knee on the neck. He was actually a, a uh, fentanyl uh, addict. But anyway, we don't need to go into that. The fact is that police brutality goes on around the world all the time, unfortunately. There's, you know, every country has its problems with um, uh, deaths of um, uh, people in police custody and that sort of mm. thing. And this goes on all the time. So why was George Floyd suddenly such a huge thing? Well, it was, it was used. It was exploited. It was exploited by the globalists. And I think that what they wanted to do was they wanted to um, prevent any sense of unity in the anti-lockdown movement. So... <laughs> What you had is this very divisive Black Lives Matter um, campaign, because it is divisive. I mean, what you see is the, uh, ver the, the woke, uh, white, middle-class people getting very ang angry about it, and, of course, some black activists as well. But it's very much a woke versus arrest uh, thing that was going on uh, back last summer. Um, what they didn't want was black and white people standing together in opposition to the COVID regime. And I've seen something very interesting, uh, Matt, at the, the last protests that I went to in London and, and others that I've seen on from the safety of my home on, on uh, YouTube, is that the police are targeting black people. Now, this is unusual. This is unusual. Uh, police targeting black and other minority people at anti-lockdown protests because they, the last thing they want is what many of the anti-lockdown protesters are saying is that they, they want, is we want unity, you know, unite against this regime. And the authorities don't want that. What they do want is scenes like you've just shown, the Australia Day uh, event, what, that this is what they do want. They want this because of the old strategy of divide 
and rule. Are you sure about this? Because I'm I've got to be honest with you, I'm feeling skeptical about the the global elite, the planned, you know, what you've mm. just laid out as a completely planned strategy. I'm more inclined to say it's emergent. You know, like well, that, I, that. yes, I mean, I, I think that. Um, uh, look, it's not a, a, a script that was all written in advance, um, and I think that what the, the globalists and progressives, technocrats, if you like, mm. what what they're doing is they're exploiting events. Uh, right. We still don't know whether COVID nineteen was accidentally or deliberately released from the Wuhan Institute of Virology. Mm. I think it's becoming uh, clearer that it didn't come from somebody eating bat soup at, uh, at the true. seafood market. Um, the, you know, they've been doing research on SARS, uh, bat viruses for quite some time. Mm. Um, so the, the question is, is we had this event 201, which was planning for a pandemic. And for a long time, there's been talk about how um, how a, a pandemic would require this huge global response, which would possibly give the globalists all kinds of powers that they would take a long time to um, a long time to um, uh, grasp otherwise. Mm. Um, so let's just say that the virus was a natural event, as it was, or it was an accidental leak from the laboratory. Um, it's quite clear that the globalists have exploited this situation, just as I believe the globalists exploited the furore over George Floyd. Mm. So I, I, I can't t say for sure um, whether how much these things are scripted, how much these things are, are known in advance, how much these things are contrived. But it's certainly very clear that they're being exploited, that they're being manipulated um, to the benefit of the um, uh, globalist New World Order project. Well, Neil, there is definitely something fishy going on in the sense, even for a lot of the people who follow Discernible, this show, are pretty mainstream and they would consider what we're talking about and they might consider you what you're saying about you a lot of fringe they're scared of these sort of terms and conspiracies and stuff but you know what they're starting to say there's something fishy because it's clear that evidence-based you wrote a paper on this evidence-based medicine is 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 out the door here in victoria the premier bold boldly says to our faces no i'm not going to release the medical data from the public health team that's it. And then we, we parade other epidemiologists to his face from our universities and so on that contradict the modeling coming up from the public health team. And we asked for some of his models and he says, no, I'm not going to give it to you. Just straight up like that. So yeah. that, that's, that's a what. Let's now, let me ask you about the why, because the reaction has astounded me. And I think I've heard you say a similar thing to this. The acceptance that we, the population, have have eaten all of this up, whether it be the BLM stuff or the the Invasion Day protest today or the lockdown stuff, the authoritarian globalist stuff. Why are people eating it up? Because when this started, we thought we'd be in the majority, maybe 50, 60% of us would, would fight against this. But it turns out that's not the case, right? In the UK as well, it's like 70% support and 20 or 30% pushback. I think the figures are being uh, distorted. My, my 
it, it's very hard for us to know what the real sort of strength of um, support for the COVID regime is, just as it's hard to get a, a good estimate of how many people really embrace woke ideology. But my, 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 my guess is that we have two poles and we have a lot, much larger group in the middle. So at one pole, you have um, lockdown and possibly even COVID uh, skeptics, you know, who, who, who really believe that what we're doing, everything that's being done with COVID is an overreaction and is, it, it is wrong. Uh, and, and some of them believing in what might be called conspiracy theories about this being done for uh, the Great Reset and a New World Order. So that's possibly 25% of the population, I would say. Then you've got the other side, the other poll, 25% who are really um, strident supporters of lockdown. In fact, they want more lockdowns and they like to you know, lock us all up in our homes for uh, a very long time and go for a zero COVID strategy, which, of course, is pretty much nonsense. Um, but we have that here, middle, though, you know. It's probably, sorry? Sorry, just, just because... I just wanted to say we have it here in Australia and New Zealand. This is this is. I need your help. This has been the number one problem for us who are saying lockdowns don't work, because in Australia and New Zealand it appears like they did work. Oh well, I think New Zealand is different from Australia, and uh, and forgive me if I'm uh, if I if I'm factually inaccurate on any of this, but my my impression is that New Zealand was in an absolutely ideal uh, yes. position to yeah. control uh, the virus um, because they, they already had a lot of biosecurity in, mm -hmm. you know, anyone arriving in New Zealand was, um, you know, you had to, you, you're at risk of a, a heavy fine if you brought in an apple and didn't mm -hmm. um, declare it, you know. <laughs> so they already had kind of the setup to do this and they're r remote enough, you know, a good, what, thousand miles away from Australia even. Mm. And um, so they had the perfect conditions in which to um, Im impose a, a, a COVID prevention, total COVID prevention strategy. And in that, of course, they've been, they've been fairly successful at, at a price. You know, my, price, my wife yes. is a yep. Kiwi yep. and she is not really able to go back and visit her family at, at the moment. Um, so the problem for New Zealand will be how long are they going to keep this going? Mm. Now, Australia, my, my sense is that Australia is in a slightly different situation. Mm. They have had a proper outbreak in New South Wales and in Victoria. Uh, Victoria. And th this disease in Europe and in America and most places in the world has become endemic. It hasn't reached endemic levels in Australia, mm. but it very definitely arrived. And my guess is that come autumn, you know, you've got your autumn starts, what, March, April? Yeah, March, March. Uh, yeah, and, and I think there's a very strong chance that this – um, coronavirus will uh, will will start to spread again, uh, particularly mm. in urban areas. Unless Australia goes for a really harsh um, 
prevention strategy like they've got in New Zealand. But I think it's harder for Australia to do that than it is for, for New Zealand. But as I say, in, in Europe, this disease is endemic. Mm. So to try to go for a zero COVID strategy, it, it really is nonsense. We've got several coronaviruses that have become endemic. We've got flu viruses that are endemic. We live with them and we're going to have to live with COVID-19 too. So people now in Australia, I can understand, and New Zealand, I can understand the extreme support for lockdowns. So in March, when it comes back here, which we all know will happen, uh, they will reach for lockdowns again because it worked last time politically and scientifically speaking. They will wreck more of our economy. They'll go for it. And our population will embrace it. I kind of understand that. But why did we embrace it to begin with? And why are people in Europe and the USA embracing this lockdown thing? What is going on in the psych- in the psychology of these normal 50% centered people that you mentioned? What's going on? Are they just stuck in their limbic system in fear? Or is it more complex than that? Uh, well, it, it's startling, isn't it? How many people have been quite willing to forego their basic rights to forgo their ability to see their own family members. Um, to it, it, you know, in, in Britain, we have a very strong pub culture. And you know, for people to be deprived of the pub, that would be you would have it's just unconscious would have been unconscionable a year ago. Yeah. Um, people have had to forego going to the football, going to church, all kinds of things. How on earth have people so readily accepted these stringent um, measures? It's quite quite baffling. So let's try and work out what's really going on. Why why are they doing this? And and I think a big factor here is the success of state propaganda. It's been a fantastic success for the PSYOPs, campaign uh, in Britain and in other countries, uh, people are constantly bombarded with COVID terror. And they're constantly bombarded with moral messages that you must do your bit, that you must be a good person in the face of this COVID crisis and not to be a reckless uh, germ spreader, and not to be somebody who spouts dangerous ideas, as do the lockdown skeptics. It's been a fantastically successful uh, government psychological uh, uh, behaviorist uh, campaign. And it, it, fear, fear is very, very powerful. Um, if you look at the climate change alarm, uh, Matt. So th- this has been going on for a long time. The United Nations and uh, global agencies, governments, have, universities, schools have been pushing this climate change emergency, but it hasn't really worked. People don't look out their window and see people dying of climate change. Um, but now what we've got is a virus, and the virus has proved so, so much more effective at scaring people. Um, and we're given, of course, the daily death tolls um, from the government press briefings. This is far, far more effective. And, and so people are being ruled 
by fear. From the government or from the media? Because over here, it's more the media. Well, it's the same thing, Matt. It's the same thing. The media have been bought by governments around the world. Um, and if you go back to event 201, which was held, the pandemic exercise that was held just before um, COVID-19 emerged, one of the key things was that in this crisis, in this predicted crisis, governments must take control of the media. And that's exactly what's happened. Uh, and, you know, the, the, the newspapers now, I mean, I used to still buy newspapers until fairly recently. I don't now because they're just, they're just propaganda sheets. They're like Pravda. And um, so the, the media are fully on side with the government. And you've got to remember that um, newspapers, Sydney Morning Herald, the age, they've got um, circulation figures falling, disappearing off a cliff. Um, it's true. Yeah. So they are very, very, and journalists, it, it used to be a, a fairly well-paid um, profession, not, 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 not so much now. And so they're more than willing to take the money. You talk, when you say money, you're not talking about actual money in a brown paper bag. You're talking about oh, deals it, for it, mates. Okay. So let me give you an example. It, it, I don't know if you've had the same in Australia. But um, I remember the day that I decided I'm, I'm no longer buying a, a, a newspaper. Mm. It's when I went to, uh, it's a few weeks into this COVID crisis in, in the UK. And I went to my local newsagent. And instead of seeing the uh, front pages of the papers, you know, the Sun, the Daily Star, the Telegraph, Guardian, etc., every single paper had the same COVID terror propaganda on a, uh, a front cover bought by the government. And that sort that, so that was, you know, that was basically giving the newspapers uh, direct purchase, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it's a it's a massive, like an advertising yeah. uh, revenue for the for the newspapers. But of course, it's not just in the taking out sort of advertorials like that. It's complete control now of what's um, reported in the news in in those papers and on the radio, television, um, and the commentators as well. So Are you saying they take their orders from Downing Street on what they report in the Sun? Well, we have a body called Ofcom in the UK, which is a media regulator. And in the early days of the COVID uh, outbreak, Ofcom told um, the media that they must not publish Disinformation. Oh, Disinformation. God. Yeah, go yeah. on and define that. It's just anything against the narrative, yeah. yeah. Exactly. So anything against the official narrative on COVID they was said being... That wow. This is Orwellian. Oh, sorry, the grandfather clock in the background. That is, all, that is Orwellian, that, that they Ofcom would do that. 
Very much so. And uh, Toby Young, who runs the Lockdown Skeptics website, he um, uh, w went to, to challenge Ofcom in court. And the verdict was that Ofcom was within its rights uh, to uh, regulate against disinformation. So Ofcom is not allowed to prevent criticism of the government. And, and so they defended, Ofcom basically won this case because uh, if Ofcom had been saying that you cannot criticise Boris Johnson, then that, that would obviously have been wrong. But no, Ofcom was preventing dangerous disinformation um, and it wasn't stopping people from criticising the government. But the big problem there, of course, is that all the government is about these days mm. is uh, COVID control. Yes. So they are preventing criticism of the government. So you, you're an expert in mental health, Niall, uh, Neil? Yes, that's right. Yep. yep. So let's. how do you see this in terms of... Um, our mental health globally. I'm concerned. What what you've just described is a mass. I don't know. I don't know. What what do you call it when you put so many billions of people into their limbic system and you keep them there and you oppress them there for months, years? Yeah. What's going to happen? Yeah. I, I just wrote a report uh, two weeks ago called "What's Happened to the Mental Health Crisis in Younger People." And the problem is that the media have been crying wolf on a mental health crisis in younger people for many years. And, um, you know, all kinds of factors have been, uh, have been uh, blamed for this mental health crisis. So, you know, constant use of social media, body shaming, um, the, um, you know, that's competitiveness. Um, exam stress, um, all kinds of things. And younger people are more stressed than ever. Now, that was all across the media for many years, for about at least 10 years now. Now, with COVID, we have a real, genuine crisis for younger people. And it's no longer being talked about. We're starting to he hear some commentators, um, commentators who are um, ra you know, raising concerns now. The problem is, though, is that educationalists, the ones who were shouting loudest about a mental health crisis in younger people pre-COVID, are the ones that are in favour of lockdown. They're supporting. So, so Neil, what's the very what's things? Yeah, I know that's ridiculous. What is going to happen? What, can you tell? Because because you, you know mental health. What, what what's going well, to crack? What's going to break? Yeah, but my hope is that younger people will lead the charge against this COVID tyranny, and we're starting to see some signs of that. It, I mean, I, I noticed in the uh, protests in, in London that initially it was um, middle-aged people 
you know, people who knew about their basic rights and common law and that sort of thing. Um, but gradually, more younger people have been getting involved um, because, quite obviously, their life prospects are being devastated mm. by this um, COVID regime. And I don't know if you've seen the riots in Holland. Yes, I have. So the Big. Dutch, the Dutch government imposed a curfew uh, two mm. nights, three nights ago, and the youth have come out onto the streets. And are demonstrating, and in fact, quite a lot of violence against the uh, police, and there's been some looting going on and so on. Um, so I, I think younger people are going to start getting more um, energized by this um, dreadful situation that they've been put in, where they can't work, they can't um, go to university, you know, they, they're doing their courses online, mm. uh, paying, you know, extortionate fees to mm. just just look at some, um, uh, do, do some Zoom um, lessons. Mm. Um, they can't socialise. They can't engage in normal recreations. Surely, Surely younger people are going to start to think, when is this going to end? How much of my life is going to be sacrificed? How much of my, you, you only get to be a, a teenager once. You only have the, you only, you only have your, your student experience um, once. How many younger people are going to tolerate this um, ad infinitum? I think, Surely, surely we're going to see younger people rise up against us. Now, the authorities know this. The authorities know that once young people realize what's going on, that they will need to give them something. They will need to promise them something that will rescue their, uh, them from their plight. And, of course, what the globalists have been planning for a long, long time is – the universal basic income. We already have it and here that, in Australia. You have you have it in Australia. So we have Sorry? yes, we have, we have something called JobKeeper here. It's it's supposed to be winding down in March, but for for the last uh, almost a year, I guess. Uh, no, it's a bit. No, it's a year. Yeah, we've had people being paid uh, seven hundred and fifty dollars a week. So it's like three hundred and fifty pound a week for not for nothing, and we've had our welfare very high as well a bit lower than that but similar so i was going to ask you my, i was going to ask you about why our young people here in australia seem to be the highest compliance compliant the most compliant demographic we have here is our young people do your young people not have do, yeah well do your young people not have the same i'd call it a anesthetic i suppose or a a tranquilizer, mm -hmm. the government money. The, yeah. You guys don't have that? Yeah. It's a good question, and it's been quite startling how much the uh, younger people have just gone along with um, the COVID regime when you think of how much of their uh, their life prospects are being damaged um, by it. Um, I, I think that for a long time, going back to the when mobile phones came out 
but it became sort of commonplace late nineties onwards, and was the emergence of social media, uh, Facebook, WhatsApp, Instagram, etc. Is that young people increasingly live their lives online? So you know, I, I can't go and watch uh, Millwall. I can't go to my the, the railway tavern. I can't go to all kinds of places that I usually frequent. And that's a big loss to me. For younger people, lockdown hasn't been anywhere near as bad as older people mm. think it should be for them. You know, we're, we're, we're taking a different perspective. You've got to understand it from the perspective of younger people themselves. And already before COVID, they were living much of their lives online. They weren't going to the pub so much. Um, you know, it didn't matter where they were, so they might as well just be at home because their life is on that screen. That is where life is lived. And therefore, COVID hasn't so dramatically changed the lives of younger people. What we do hear about is um, students complaining about how, you know, they're not getting value for money because their lectures are online now. But has their life Life really changed much in the short term. No, it hasn't. And that partly explains why there's been so little pushback from younger people. So, but of course, about, the, well, aren't you contradicting yourself here with the, you know, and even at the end of Moralitis, the solution is for Gen Z to rise up, right? The book yeah. Moralitis. How, yeah. Isn't that contradicting what we're saying now? They're all pacified? Yeah, it, seemed, it seems like a contradiction, doesn't it? And I think that the mistake that we always make as sort of uh, social commentators is that people tend to make the mistake that the trajectory we're on now is the trajectory we'll stay on. And, of course, history doesn't work like that. History always finds a way of uh, change. You know, change is, is, is something which, you know, History is basically two things. It's constancy and change. And mm-hmm. what social commentators tend to do is they, 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 they attach themselves to the constancy. They see yep. that we're on a particular trajectory and think that we're going to stay on that. But I think there is a, a big potential for younger people to see that life online is not a fulfilling um, uh way of, um, you know, I think younger people will, perhaps because of COVID, the COVID regime, will see that, oh, yes, it was, it's great having these things, these uh, the, the social media and, and, and all technology. But now we're being told that's all we're allowed to do. Now we're being forced into doing this. It's no longer our choice to do it. It's no longer just for convenience and for enjoyment. It's we're forced to do it. And when they realize they're being forced to do it, that's when they may start to wake up and fight um, for basically to fight for their humanity. Um, because otherwise. Will, yeah, you think that will happen? Because maybe I'm falling for that error of thinking where I find myself in young people, complacency will last forever. But you think that this will happen when? It's very hard to predict. 
Now, if you look at communism uh, back in the 1980s, um, the Eastern Europe and uh, Soviet Union, there were lots of criticisms of the communist system, but nobody, nobody was seriously predicting that communism would fall in 1989, right? And when it happened, it was like a domino effect, wasn't it? You know, yes. Uh, all of those countries came crashing down, including the Soviet Union itself, hmm. and no one was predicting that. And I, I think that what's going to happen with the COVID regime is that it's going to fall, but we it's hard to say where it will fall. And I think it will be um, quite unpredictable, and it might be uh, surprising that there'll be one country, perhaps, where something happens which just pushes people over the edge. And then from, from there on, you will have a domino effect. It, it, it's hard to predict when and where the uh, revolt will start. But of course, the history books in 10, 20 years time, looking back, will make it sound like, oh, it was obvious that it was going to yep. start in Barcelona yeah, yeah, <laughs> or yeah. wherever it is. You know, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. just like people think back to the Berlin Wall now and they think, well, it's obvious that um, the wall was going to come crashing down in 1989. No, it wasn't. It was a surprise. It was completely unpredicted. And, and that's what I think the um, fall of the COVID regime will be like. Okay, what's going to happen to the mental health of people at that point? Uh, I, I mean, the reason why I asked you on here specifically to talk about empathy, which I'll ask you about in a minute, is I'm concerned that we're not paying enough attention to the mental health aspect of this. But more than that, I'm wondering if we can have a bit more empathy for the other side. It frustrates me that over here on the anti-lockdown side, we just point to the other side and say they're woke idiots. I mean, I said that earlier in the conversation and mm -hmm. I want to try and have a bit more empathy to understand where they're coming from so that we can crack into their minds and maybe change their minds yeah. on supporting this authoritarianism. So can you speak at all to empathy and am I on the right path or the wrong path here trying to convince people through empathy? That's a good point. And I think that just by, um, slinging um, insults from one side to the other. It, it, um, it just entrenches uh, people. I, I think from the lockdown sceptic side, make more of a shout about mental health because I think that inevitably this um, regime is going to have and already is having a devastating impact mm. on people's mental health. Uh, across all ages, not just younger people. But I think that's what we need to push a lot more, that, that lockdown is very harmful and that we need to do more to... Um, we need to give people a future, which they don't really have at the moment. It's, it's hard for younger people to see, you know, when is this going to end? And okay, as I've just said a few moments ago, to some extent, their lives are carrying on as always with um, their online communications and so on. Um, but there's no kind of light at the end of the tunnel really for this at the moment. And I think that what we should do from the lockdown skeptic side is 
rather than going on about people being um, woke and um, you know the absurdities of uh, their, their 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 outlook, I, I think we need to remember it's what like what we put in the, the book Moralitis is that most younger people who are all characterized as, as woke, it's become a stereotype, hasn't it? Actually, yes. you know, they're not really that committed to the extreme cultural Marxist ideology at all. I, I, I just don't, don't see it. Um, most younger people are a bit sensible. Um, they've been uh, encouraged through, throughout their years of schooling and going to university. They've been sort of, you know, I think we should avoid the term brainwashed, but they've certainly been pushed into believing certain things and behaving in certain ways. Um, but deep down, they remain sensible human beings who can work things out. And I think that what we need to do is to promote the idea of humanity, humanity versus technocracy, because that's what's really going on here. It's not really about a virus. This virus has been exploited as a power grab by globalists who want a technocratic system of control. It's a global surveillance state. And this is what I think we should do with younger people, appeal to their humanity. How do you, appeal- how do, you do that? How do, how, do you make, how do you bring that human message in? Yeah. So younger people are taught about the horrors of fascism, the horrors of um, the Holocaust. They're taught that uh, it's better to be open than to be closed. It's better to um, promote diversity than it is to be insular and nationalistic. They're taught all those things. The COVID tyranny is doing all things that younger people have been taught not to like. The COVID tyranny is closed. It's, yeah. it's, um, it's intolerant. It's punitive. Yeah. It's life-restricting. And, and I think what we need to get younger people to see or encourage them to see is that all of those positive values that they've been encouraged to um, develop and to nurture and to signal are the opposite of what the COVID tyranny is doing. Wow. So you're not talking about convincing them really of anything. You're talking about reframing it, you know, empathizing with their noble goals of being all, all um, mm-hmm. open and all that and reframing it. Well, <laughs> not even reframing, showing them that uh, the true compassion here would, not be what they're doing. They're doing the opposite of compassion, which they claim to love. Yeah, yeah. Um, so there's lots of videos going around of uh, police brutality at yeah. um, demonstrations and indeed of police breaking into people's homes. Yes. Like uh, you mentioned earlier, the pregnant yes. woman in Melbourne. Yep. I mean, we've had similar things going on in the UK now. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's not that difficult to show people these videos and ask them, 
is this on the side of humanity? You know, apparently this is about stopping a virus and uh, stopping these reckless germ spreaders, right? But come on. Uh, and, and I think what the COVID regime has done is it's exposed how fraudulent some people are who've claimed to be liberal. Mm. And they've been exposed as frauds. They're supporting police breaking down somebody's front door, mm. arresting people in their own homes for some minor um, COVID infringement. They're stopping younger people from going to parties, going to raves. Now, as I say, the the difficulty here is that it's hard to know just how much this really affects younger people if they are living their lives online. But I think what will make the difference is if young people get the message that doing everything online is not just convenient and enjoyable, but it's actually what they're forced to do. They're Mm. being forced to live their lives online rather than attend parties and raves and concerts and so on. I think it's when they get the penny drops. What is this all about? And this is all about control. This is all about creating a global digital surveillance society where people's freedoms will be severely restricted, not just while this virus is doing the rounds, but forever. We will have a self-serving elite that will have the ability to travel around the world and to eat red meat and all these things that ordinary people will be deprived of. It's so true. You look at the US now, I don't know if you've got it in the UK as well, but rules for thee, not for me. Even bloody Joe Biden's already doing it. Mask mandate doesn't apply to him. Can I ask you, how can we, because you said to me that you have family members that are opposite views to you. How do you communicate with, I'll ask you both directions. How do we communicate with those people who are so fearful and pro-lockdown? What's the best way to do that? Because yelling at them, they just doesn't work. It doesn't work. I mean, it, it's it's cathartic sometimes to, <laughs> it's um, cathartic. Uh, you know, uh, I, I sent <laughs> a, a message to my uh, family. I, I'm sort of a black sheep of the family for um, yeah. being a COVID, uh, the lockdown skeptic, you know. But I, I just sent them a message every day. Um, you know, I, my family believe that the vaccine is going to be the, um, you know, is going to be the freedom pass sort of thing. Yeah. Uh, clearly now the government's not saying that anymore. They're mm-hmm. saying, no, we're still going to have to have lockdown and masks and so on. Yep. So I, I just sent them a, a message saying, you know, first they tried social distancing, with one-way systems and police patrolling the park and the rule of six didn't work. Then they tried lockdown, didn't work. Then they mandated masks, didn't work. Then they tried the tier system, circuit breaker, didn't work. Then they imposed lockdown again, still didn't work. Now the vaccines, but they don't really work either. I mean, these are just facts. So look, I'm not saying that kind of approach. (laughs) 
<laughs> works. It probably just gets people's backs off. But give them the facts. You know, if this regime is so necessary and so um, effective, where's the evidence? Where's the evidence? You know, you, you, in Australia, you can say quite genuinely, I think, I think people can say that uh, lockdown measures at least worked in containing the the viral outbreaks in Melbourne and Sydney. 100%. 100%. Yeah. That's, yeah. yeah, that's a popular I, I'd accept yeah. I'd accept that, just as I accept readily that uh, New Zealand has managed to stop the virus from getting into um, society there. But it, 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 in the rest of the world, most of the rest of the world, the disease has become endemic. Yes, right? yes. And we're just going to have to live with it. Um, where is the evidence that lockdowns, masks, social distancing, uh, all these other things have worked? There isn't any. There isn't any. And, and, and the scientific data is showing that, that there just is no, um, th these measures, you, you compare to countries that haven't brought in the such restrictions like Sweden, Belarus, Japan, and some of the states in the US. And there's no real difference between any of them. Yeah, like the, the virus yeah. does its thing. So are you... Uh, so it's a, a good question that you might ask people, uh, Matt, is who do they blame for the spread of COVID? Hmm. Is it A, the government, B, the people, or C, the virus? I mean, it'd be interesting. Let's see what, what, where, where people are. I mean, I'm pretty, I'm pretty sure it's the virus. It, the virus is just doing what viruses do. Okay, so are you really advocating that uh, you we give them facts and somehow that changes their mind? Because, I mean, they're in a fearful state. Yeah, the trouble is that even if, even if you could give them the facts and for them to be, uh, uh, you know, all the reason and um, the, all the data of the empirical evidence around what's happened with COVID so far, even if you gave them that, the trouble is they're bombarded with the official narrative. Right. And the, the official narrative doesn't just give the, um, the, the government's side on this. There's also been a, a tremendous growth in what's called fact-checking uh, oh, websites. Yeah. And these fact-checking websites are given prominence in any Google search. So anyone that wants to find out, if you give them a fact about how COVID mortality in the UK, despite all the, 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 the fear, all the, um, the, the terrible death tolls given every day, that actually the mortality is not that high. Yeah, it's not not massively more than 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 average at all. You know, it, it's it's actually lower than some years in the twenty first century. If you give them that fact, they will go on to Google, and all they will get is um, the official narrative um, backed by all these fact check websites, and at anything that you tell them, that it, it will come up as false. You know, with a big red cross. Um, so it, it's hard to get through with facts, I'm afraid. 
So let me ask the reverse. How should those people who are pro-lockdowns talk to the anti-lockdown people? Um, well, the way that they've been talking to us is that um, they've accused us of being morally deficient. We don't right. care. Yep. You know, um, we, we, we are, we have, uh, our, our ideas all tend to be um, stereotyped as being at, at the extremes. You know, we're called mm. anti-vaxxers, mm. we're called conspiracy theorists and cranks, and sometimes far right as well, <laughs> which is interesting, yeah. given that we're, you know, fighting for freedom. Um, that's the way they talk to us at the moment. How might they talk to us better? Well, I suppose from both sides, we need to find some way of meeting in the middle. And I, I, I think that there are some on the lockdown skeptic side who are actually, you know, beyond just skeptical about the government's reaction. They, they don't believe that COVID exists. Mm. And I think that the pe people at that level of belief um, are never going to really compromise, mm. okay? Just as there are some people on the other side, the lockdown zealots, who are never going to compromise. But I think most people are reasonable. Most people are, 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 are decent. Most people are, are, if given the opportunity, are prepared to listen to some counter-argument. So I think um, somehow we've got to focus more on the people in the middle rather than the two poles. And the right. people in the middle can have some compromises like, yes, from our side, we agree there's a virus. Yeah. And we agree that lots of people have died yeah. um, with this virus. And from the other side, the, the, the pro-lockdown people who are generally in favor of the lockdown, um, they have got to see, they've got, they've got to show that they're concerned about freedoms, concerned about basic liberties, basic rights for people to get on with their lives um, and, and for shops to um, trade and for churches to allow worship and things like that. So I think there is a possibility of coming together, and I hope that's what will, will happen. I, I don't think every country is going to have a violent uprising. No. Right. I, I think that what will happen is eventually uh, people will come together and try and find some better way of dealing with this than we've got at the moment. Well, that's a very good prescription. Uh, those anti-lockdowners to make some concessions and acknowledgements to the, the fearful people on the seriousness of COVID. And for those pro-lockdowners to make some concessions that yes, we are destroying a bit of the economy and lives and mental health and, uh, and so on. Uh, and well, and I, I found it remarkable how, uh, I, I know a lot of people that work in the health service who are very much pro-lockdown. And I found it remarkable how they have been quite prepared to um, support restriction on vital healthcare and treatment for people with non-COVID conditions. Cancer I, I screening and so on. By that. Hmm? Cancer screening and so on. Yeah, yeah, 
Yeah, and, and you know, and, and, and I, as a mental health uh, lecturer, I, I say to people, well, what about the mental health impact of this? What about suicides? And it's just like they're, they're not interested. Wow. And, and, and I find that I found that stunning. I, I found that I found that there's been some. What's ironic, Matt, is that we lockdown skeptics are seen as morally dubious, and yet the other side has shown some deep disregard for ethical standards. We've seen that in the, you know, that they've been quite happy for older people to get turfed out of hospitals, into care homes where they went infected, lots of other residents and caused a huge amount of deaths. Something that half the deaths have been in care homes, and a lot of them unnecessary, caused by a deliberate policy of kicking older people out of hospital. Um, they don't seem to see a problem with that. Don't seem to see a problem with, we don't seem to think that there's a, major problem about cancer screening being stopped, IVF treatment being stopped and so on. Um, I, I found this really startling. This is deeply unethical in my view. And you also see it with the vaccine. So we know that the vaccine um, hasn't been properly tested, not in the way that vaccines normally are. And I don't know if you've heard, but in, in the UK, the government is so keen to get people to take this um, vaccine. So the, the Pfizer vaccine, I think it has supposed to be taken two, two doses. I think I'm right in saying that you have one dose and then the second dose uh, two or three weeks later. Something like that, yeah. And what the government, that's Pfizer, but you're mostly AstraZeneca, aren't you, in the UK? Uh, no, no. Uh, most of the people in uh, who've been vaccinated so far have had the Pfizer one because the Pfizer one was given approval uh, a lot, uh, um, several weeks before the AstraZeneca one. Right. Um, now, um, what the government has decided is that people need to get these doses, um, the first doses. So they're going to stop. They stop giving the second doses. Oh, um, wow. Now that that's actually dangerous. This 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 is dangerous, and it has not been uh, tested. Um, in the development of the drug, that the, the drug has been tested to be the, the vaccine. Sorry, has been tested to be taken in two doses, two to three weeks apart. And now the government is saying, well, we can give the second dose three months later. That hasn't been tested, and this is actually dangerous because you you can you, you you've got a condition known as uh, pathogenic priming, which can occur with vaccines where people who then get COVID after the first dose are actually more susceptible to um, a severe um, uh, symptoms of the uh, of COVID if they get it. So, is, is pathogenic priming a concern with these mRNA vaccines? Was it only with the traditional ones? Um, well, uh, the mRNA vaccines have never been this is the first time that first they've time, been used yeah. Yeah. so this is like a mass um population experiment mm. with with the, with this vaccine we we don't know anything about its medium to long-term effects 
And um, you, you've got large groups of the of society on whom the vaccine hasn't been tested. As far as I know, it hasn't been tested on children, hasn't been tested on pregnant women. And I don't think it's been tested on women of childbearing age. Mm. Um, and this isn't just any old vaccine. This isn't just like a, a stand, you know, the standards sort of vaccine technology for conditions like meningitis or measles. Yeah. Yeah. This is genetic engineering. This hasn't been done before. And it's like we're throwing caution to the wind. And, uh, and, I, and I think that I would certainly say to uh, women of childbearing age, be very careful with your decision about taking this vaccine because um, there is no... Uh, guarantee that it's safe at all, Look, and, and in, there's no liability for the uh, producer either. Same here. You're in good company because Pfizer say the exact same thing. You know, re reading the Pfizer handouts on their website to both the medical professionals and the patients, um, they're pretty open about it. That says right there, it's not been approved. It's an emergency use authorization in the US. It's a provisional approval here in Australia. Um, don't take it if you're pregnant. Uh, yeah, look, that's not very controversial. Can I, I, I didn't think we'd talk so much about um, lockdowns, but I, I forgot that you guys are in the midst of a crazy, what we were in three, two, three months ago. But I want to ask you about your work just to finish off. What are you doing at the moment? What are you, what are you interested? What are you researching? Because you're, you're pretty prolific academically. Well, I, I, I do a, a combination uh, of uh, research on mental health, and I also do some political research um, uh, outside of my day job. Um, my, my interest in mental health is mainly around uh, culture and particularly uh, young, younger people's culture. So the book, Moralitis, A Cultural Virus, yeah. uh, which, which I, of course, I wrote with Robert Olds, uh, my interest in this was having seen firsthand the attitudes of young uh, students right. and seeing that there was what, what seemed to be wrong for me with the outlook of younger people is that they had been pushed into believing certain things that aren't actually for their benefit. Right. And um, so... And, and, of course, there's young people spending almost all of their time on their screens, right. which, again, is known to have, you know, it's pros and cons, isn't it? The internet is a double-edged sword. And we know that there's lots of um, potential or real hazards with um, uh, internet use. So uh, uh, this is my big interest. It's mm. how, what is the future for younger people? Uh, what is the mental health? impact of the lives that they are leading. And, and I think that probably in history, we'll look back at this time as a, as a very important stage in human and social development. And what's not clear at the moment is which direction we're going to take from here. But I think there's some real big, big, big challenges for younger people, unprecedented. And it, it, it's, it's, it's something that we need to understand a lot more about before we can understand how, before we can learn how to make um, society work better for the, the, the younger people and their future. 
And when you were doing your research, you were noticing differences. I think you touched a bit on this in the end of Morolitis, but are you, were you noticing differences in the younger generation politically? There's been some research in recent um, years suggesting that younger people are beginning to tire of woke ideology and that they're starting to become more conservative. Now, I think we're, that that's, it's going to take a while before that um, because, gets the momentum. Um, I certainly found that there are, that, that if you've got some outspoken students in the group, so you always have that in, in, a, in any group, you have the people who are quiet, the people that um, like to say controversial things and so on. The people who say controversial things, the people who enjoy uh, speaking out and, it, and enjoy testing the water with uh, controversial opinions, are people with conservative views. Mm. And um, it's interesting the reaction that they get because, you know, they've got people like shouting at them. They've got people who um, disassociate or, you know, make sort of outcast them. Um, but, but you can see that they are speaking sense. You can see eyes light up in some of the other students when, when, these, when these people speak. Uh, what, what I've noticed is that the students who are, who express those con conservative viewpoints, who are a very, very small minority, the ones that speak out, they tend to be of non-white background. Really? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I find that the most woke uh, people of all is the white middle-class students. I mean, that, that's pretty obvious. And in fact, if you look at the Black Lives Matter uh, protests in, so, in London and yeah. other cities around the UK, white middle dominated class. white middle class people. Um, but I find it's people from uh, uh, black and Asian backgrounds who are the ones who are most likely to uh, speak out and to, uh, and, and perhaps yeah. that's to some extent because they've got more license to do that. Um, yeah. But I also think that they, that there are black and Asian students who can see that what's coming out of the mouths of woke white middle class students is rubbish. It, it's not real. It's a facade. Mm. It, it's, um, it's like la la land. I should also ask you about the academics, your colleagues. Uh, are you a minority? Or, um, yeah, where do they sit? Are they all pro-Boris, pro-lockdown? I, I, I am a minority, yes. And um, it, it became very obvious how much of a minority that I, I am when we had the EU referendum, mm. uh, when uh, what, what I found was that lots of my colleagues actually supported Brexit, but they would never, ever say this in public. I was the only one, I think, in my faculty that openly um, talked about Brexit and uh, declared myself as a Brexiteer. Now, people, people go very, very quiet. And, and I think that's what's happening now with the COVID regime. I think there are staff, there's bound to be lots of staff 
in universities and in hospitals who think this is wrong, but they won't dare to say it because there would be severe consequences for them, I'm afraid. And uh, so uh, it, it's hard to know just how common your views are when people are scared to talk about their real views. But I, I think that it's likely that there's a lot more conservative opinion. There's a lot more support for uh, Brexit. And there's a lot more lockdown scepticism than is readily apparent in these uh, institutions like schools, universities and, and, and hospitals. Because okay. you have a dominant narrative and the dominant narrative is in control of how topics are discussed, but also in control of even more important things like your career um, progress. Uh, Dr. Neil McRae, uh, very cool talking to you. Do you have a, I'm about to ask you for some parting wisdom. Do you have a, a, a message that you like to drum out there over and over? Do you want to say something to the, well, it depends how, depends how good a job we've done. If this goes out to over a hundred thousand people, that'd be great. If we didn't do well, it might only go out to 10,000, but do you have a, a message that you want to tell people now's the, now's the opportunity. I think we are at a crossroads now. I think that the globalists have exploited COVID. They've managed to do more things in the last year than they would have thought would have been possible in 20 or 30 years. Um, this uh, fear and propaganda have been extremely effective. And I think that the crossroads we're at is do we want to go further down the road into becoming an atomized, digitized um, society? Well, it's not even really a society, is it? It's just um, people under control of a global elite where we're, lots of the things that we were doing pre-COVID are no longer available to us. Um, we have a basic universal income, which means that we are dependent on the state. We no longer have our, our autonomy or our dignity. We live entirely online. The shops have gone, the pubs have gone, concerts no longer available for us. Do we want that? Do we want that life? Do we want a life where we become basically digital slaves? Or do we want to regrasp our humanity? Do we want to restore freedoms? Do we want to restore the right to speak, the right to protest, the right to go to football matches and concerts and pubs and churches and shops, the right for our children to get education in school, the right for students to get lectures in university, but more importantly than anything, the right to be human. And I think this is a big challenge that we've got because the choice is between the sort of humanity that we had, that we know that we had before COVID, 
and where the global elite wants to take us, which is into a technocracy where only an elite will be allowed to do the things that we used to take for granted. Dr. Neil McRae, what's the best way to follow you? What is your platform of choice? Uh, I'm on Gab. Oh, uh, first person to say that to me, Gab. All right. Yeah, yeah I've actually been on Gab for a few years. And um, uh, I, I wasn't using it very much. But of course, now that um, uh, uh, Twitter has been um, ha having a great purge, uh, suddenly Gab has become very big. And um, so I've got a, a slow but sl slowly growing number of followers on Gab. So. What's your are, are you on Gab yourself, Matt? I'm not. I'm not. Right. I'm not. I'm okay. not crazy enough to be on Gab. Apparently, you have to be an alt-right nutter to be on Gab. That's what our media says to me. <laughs> our, our ABC, <laughs> our BBC. It literally does. And it also, they had an article out that if you use Signal, you're just one of those alt-righters, Trump supporters, because you use Signal. I mean, bloody Elon Musk uses Signal. Uh, so, Gab, what's your handle on Gab? Uh, well, it's just Neil McRae. Okay. Tell you what, email me your, your handles and I'll put them in the show notes this episode. Uh, thank you. For, thank you for sharing uh, and uh, for your message. It was a pleasure. Thanks very much, Matt. Thanks. Thanks to all for listening. Mm -hmm.